What's up, guys, and welcome to the Megatherium Club podcast, where three nerdy guys will talk about fascinating creatures from across time and share their love of science and nature. I'm here with my amazing friends, Zach and Spencer, and my name is Sean, we are, and we are excited to get this started. This podcast is inspired by the original Megatherium Club from the 19th century. If you don't know what that is, that is all right, because we will talk about that soon. In fact, I'm not sure if any of us have heard about them before this year. Had you guys? No, this is, uh, this is yeah, you came to us a few weeks ago um, and said, hey, I just read this article on this old club that started at the Smithsonian. Uh, have you guys heard of this? No. I worked there and hadn't heard of this. So, uh, yeah, it was new to me, and uh, I, I'm assuming new to most yeah, people. Yeah, I had never heard of them either. Uh, you just sent us this po- or the, the link to their Smithsonian website, and I was like, wow, these guys are really cool, and this kind of is, represents who we are as you know, people and as a group of friends, you know, just looking for uh, adventure and creatures, animals, dinosaurs, everything. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I could say that better myself. Um, I should say that we are in no way affiliated with the original club or the Smithsonian Institute. We're just a few good friends that greatly admire the original crew and wanted to share our love of all creatures with anyone that could relate. Uh, maybe we should start by introducing who we are briefly, and then we'll get into this first pilot episode. My name is Sean Lewis. I am an entomologist. That is someone who studies insects. I currently live in North Carolina with my beautiful wife and a handful of pets. I've always been interested in all animals and have had a passion for insects and dinosaurs specifically since I was a kid. I like to refer to paleontology as my hobby interest, and excited to be here with you guys. Spencer, do you want to go next? Yeah, I'll step in. So yeah, just like Sean, I'm also an entomologist. Uh, and yeah, that's kind of how uh, some of us got connected. Um, no spoilers there. But um, yeah, so I currently work in higher education, uh, working with students in many different facets and get to teach entomology um, at a wilderness field station. So kind of uh, is passing along my passions to the next generation of entomologists or, you know, soon to be entomologists and yeah just like sean uh kind of (laughs) was obsessed with bugs and of course paleontology when i was a kid and uh that has only just i i suppose would got stronger with time um yeah so i'm excited to be a part of this uh zach i'll pass it along to you yeah i am also an entomologist but i like to think of myself as more of a an ecologist because i also work in forestry and landscape ecology sort of um yeah currently living in colorado with my girlfriend and my dog and i work for the state going out into the woods looking for bugs and seeing how they uh, affect our forest ecosystems here in colorado but yeah, I kind of got started in at a very young age with uh, reading every zoo book I could at the library, and even before I could read, making my mom read me read to me every single dinosaur book I could find at the library. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how I got my start, and I first met Sean in California while we were uh, looking for bumblebees out in the Sierra Nevadas. And then I met Spencer in grad school because we were in the same forest entomology lab and then kind of connected everybody together. And here we are today. Well, OK, I, I, I do want to point out we, we got connected through a very specific way. 
Um, Zach, I'll let you <laughs> highlight what that is. <laughs> you want me to talk about ARC? Oh, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so all of us got started, or we, like, met, well, Sean and Spencer met each other. We got connected through a video game that we call ARC. Stands for well, ARC no. Survival Evolved. Yeah. Okay. And uh, it's a video game about survival. And on a, uh, originally, it was on an island with dinosaurs, and all of us were obsessed with dinosaurs. And then I was playing this game with Sean, and Spencer was like, Whoa, what are you playing there? Is that ARC? And I was like, Whoa, you know about ARC? Like, who is this l- loser here? Uh, yep, play yep. with us. <laughs> And so, yeah, that's that's where we got started. Yeah. So, uh, I'll yeah, I, I, just, I wanted to highlight that, that, you know, we may live in a different time period than some of the men we're going to talk about today. But, you know, we were doing what they were doing just digitally, I think. And I think that, that I'm, I'm not sure they were riding dinosaurs. Well, they would have if they could. If they could. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I definitely had at some point uh, a taxidermy collection in one of my arc houses. Um, it was great. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. In that, you know. Yeah. All right. Why don't we just start talking about the Megatherium Club? Yeah. What, what the heck is it, Sean? Yeah. All right. Enough about us. But let's let's get to the good stuff. Um, uh, we we wanted to highlight the original Megatherium Club and its members for this first episode, but in the future. We will be selecting a group of organisms, either closely related on a phylogenetic tree, lived in the same period of deep time, have similar characteristics, or maybe have nothing in common at all. Uh, but we will talk about them and share any knowledge we uncover with each other and anyone listening along with us. Does that sound right to you guys about the future of this podcast? Well, uh, you've already said it, so that's it. You, you established the No, that's great. Um and it, it, what you said was vague enough to cover literally everything. So I would also um, like to highlight that, as we will find out later in this episode, the Megatherium Club placed a heavy emphasis on uh, expeditions and like what we might want to call adventure. And mm. we also might stick to true. those uh, same values at the, that the original Megatherium Club had and talk about our own, you know, quote unquote, expeditions and adventures. Oh, True. yeah, for sure. Yeah. True. There is fun to be had in the future here. But, okay, the Megatherium Club. Uh, it was founded in 1857 by William Stimson, and it was named after the giant ground sloths that lived in the Pliocene. Um, if you guys don't know what a Megatherium is, that's all right. That will probably be in a potentially next episode. Um, They're in these art. guys were obsessed. <laughs> these guys were obsessed with this ancient mammal, often greeting each other with, How, how? which they deemed was the call that it made. I'm not sure how they did that. But this was uh, more than just a club, in my opinion. Uh, I feel like this is what fraternities today wish they could be. Um, this this group of Washington, D.C. scientists associated with the Smithsonian Institute started hanging out and putting their heads together to describe and classify species. This club included zoologists, paleontologists, ichthyologists, and other biologists. Uh, some of the big names that are mentioned being affiliated with this club include Henry Bryant, Spencer Fullerton Baird, Bard? Mm-hmm. Baird? Baird. Bard, uh, I believe. Okay. I've been calling him Baird. <laughs> I, keep, I keep thinking of him as a D. No, it is, it is Baird. No, nope, okay. you're right. Yep. Okay. 
Um, Edward Drinker Cope, James E. Cooper, Lawrence Humphrey Evers, Theodore Gill, Ferdinand Hayden, Robert Kennicott, Fielding Meek, John Strong Newberry, Henry Ilkey, and of course the founder William Stimson. Um, reading about these guys, I, I constantly came across the word naturalist to describe them. And I always thought I knew what that word meant, but I did have to double check because I don't think a lot of people refer to themselves as that today. Okay, um, can I can I I just want to yeah. pipe in real fast. When I was in graduate school, Zach, I was our our advisor uh, referred to me as a naturalist. He says you're more of a naturalist than than anything else, a naturalist and educator. Um, so I don't like. He referred to me as a redneck. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I believe that. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, okay. So, yeah, the fact that these guys were all considered naturalists and my advisor considers me one uh, brings me quite joyful feelings. Nice. Yeah, but I just want to interrupt and, you know, kind of no, yeah, I, myself. Yeah, I appreciate that because <laughs> you're, you're probably the only person that I know that can say that. Perfect. Uh, yeah, there we go. So awesome. All right, Spencer is a naturalist. A naturalist, uh, by definition that I looked up, is a student of natural history, often uh, a field biologist, which uh, makes sense why all these men were referred to that. And what I was going to lead into, I think all three of us could potentially be described as a naturalist, probably with Spencer being the most fitting. Uh, Okay, so this club of nerds, and nerds for this podcast and for everything, really, uh, are a good thing. Don't... Um, we're all nerds here, so if I use the term nerd, it is a positive term. You're in a safe space. Um, <laughs> this is a safe space for all nerds, not just bug nerds, dinosaur nerds, all all nerds. Um, but so so these guys started using each other's brains to help them sort through specimens and data they collected on expeditions uh, around the world. Uh, but these boys were not your uh, quiet library, nose in a book at all times nerds. No, these guys like to have fun. In fact, they were known for their rowdy nature probably just as much as their contributions to science. Uh, once they put away their journals, out came the drinks. And according to a couple of sites that I was looking at, their drink of choice was eggnog. Um, homemade, I should probably add to that, since they raised these hens and the extra eggs that they had went to the nog supply uh do do you guys like eggnog no i have literally never had eggnog (laughs) it's horrible it tastes like christmas i will say though in spirit of the original megatherium club i am drinking some pre-mixed margarita with (laughs) with a lot of extra tequila (laughs) oh okay Okay. with egg (laughs) yeah yeah with with an egg Mm. No, 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 no egg, no eggs. Yeah, no eggnog. No eggs are okay in breakfast foods, but they should. <laughs> you should not drink egg anything. I I drank a raw egg yolk once, straight from the egg. Um, straight and, from the egg. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say straight from the chicken, but that's better. <laughs> you just, just cracked an egg in, in, into the mouth. No, this this was an egg on a canoeing trip that had been kind of just outside the refrigerator, which in America, eggs should be refrigerated because they've been uh, bleached. 
and what what is the term pasteurized or whatever so you know, eggs in europe and other places around the world don't have to be refrigerated but american ones do and this egg had been sitting outside of the refrigerator on a canoe trip for like four days and i still ate it raw it was horrible and i just drinking eggs even though it's nothing like drinking raw eggs um just irks me so i can't uh, unfortunately drink that in the spirit of the megatherium club but i am drinking wine so okay cheers to them well being uh vegan i also cannot drink eggnog but uh i think there is a vegan eggnog so maybe i'll have to find it um i know my wife knows about it but adding rum to it has always ruined it for me Hmm. um and I mean, I, I don't have a recipe for what these guys are drinking, but I think we can assume it was bottom shelf not <laughs> at the best. <laughs> uh, I don't know what they mixed with theirs. Um, yeah. Yeah, I couldn't find the recipe. Know. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe the Smithsonian has it and we can go ask them about it. So, Make a request for information. <laughs> this is important <laughs> eggnog recipe oh, okay so good. so these guys would get a little rowdy on the nog and uh what would they do um they're living in a castle this the smithsonian castle and for fun after they've had a couple glasses of nog they put on their finest potato sack and race down the hallway. Um, you, re- you remember that thing in elementary school that you guys had to do uh, on field day where everybody just hopped around and raced each other? In and, and a big old everybody... potato sack? <laughs> everybody fell on their face. There's probably like <laughs> one, one dude, Trevor, kicking everybody's butt. How did you know his name? <laughs> it just, <laughs> just comes with it, I guess. Um, but yeah, I... Uh, do you, do you guys think they were fast? Uh, I'm, I'm uh-huh. honestly not yeah. sure. With the amount of uh, hiking that some of these guys did, these guys were the Usain Bolts of <laughs> potato sacrifices. <laughs> so, yeah. I, by the way, I, I looked it up, and people still sack race, and world records are kept. And <laughs> the, the fastest 100-meter sack race right now is 25.96. That's seconds. And was set in 2020 by Christian Roberto Lopez Rodriguez. Um, I feel like that's some pretty low-hanging fruit if the Megatherium boys are still around. They were training under the influence. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's what I'm about okay, to do well, now. I've got, a, I've got a goal in my mind now. <laughs> yep. Yep. I, I did see that the, the third fastest time in the world right now is Mo Farah, the... Uh, the United Kingdom 10K runner, I think, half marathon yeah, runner. He's a distance, distance guy. Um, I think that if it's a 100-meter dash, why did they put a long-distance guy into that event? They need to put Bolt in this and see what he could do. But, you know, that's that's out of my page. <laughs> I, think, I think Bolt has better things to do than a, a sack race. <laughs> I don't know what he does these days other than support puma i i I, is he still racing no no if i was usain bolt right now i'd be drinking this margarita on the jamaican beach yeah yeah talking about megatherium uh, yeah yeah that's i would be recording this podcast (laughs) just from jamaica yeah 
I also read that uh, if the crew were feeling up to it after, you know, their uh, glasses of nog and sack races, they would venture outside the castle and serenade the daughters of Joseph Henry, who was the secretary of the Smithsonian. Um, and they all lived in the castle uh, at the same time. And I, I had to see if I could find a picture of one of his daughters. And I found one of the three. Her name was Mary Anna Henry. And if I were a single man in the 1800s, under the influence of a better nog, maybe tired from sack racing, would I have serenaded Miss Mary? Pretty good chance. Absolutely. I'm just going to have to... Yeah. Okay, but we yeah, keep talking sure. about this Smithsonian castle. What is up with that? I need to know what this castle's all about. Is this like a real yes. castle so, with a moat, so, a dragon, a princess, has, and the tallest it has and the all highest tower? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, I, so I, I worked uh, at the Natural History Museum in, in uh, D.C. for little while it was an unpaid internship so work is slavery um, (laughs) well i have some thoughts about unpaid internships but i loved my time there and i loved the people i worked with i worked in the uh the entomology department there um, which is absolutely enormous um and yeah so the the castle is basically straight across the mall and straight up is like dark brick looking like mansion castle it doesn't look quite like the knights and armor castles um so no it doesn't have a moat it doesn't have a dragon well it probably has a dragon there's definitely uh, there's like a 150 more four million things within the smithsonian institutes so one of those has to be a dragon it, it's like the original building it kind of serves honestly as like the smithsonian museum of the smithsonian <laughs> so like all the history about the smithsonian and all that sorts of fun stuff can be found in that building rather than a lot of the stuff that you can find um, natural history based was gonna was moved over to the current location that it's in now uh but yeah it's still around you can go visit for free oh. um so and that's in dc yeah, it's in D.C., uh, just right on the mall, right straight down from the Capitol building. Um, it's surrounded by, um, oh gosh, one of the galleries of art, um, the Air and Space Museum, I think. Um, and then across the way, you have the National Gallery of Art, the um, African American Museum, um, the Natural History Museum, and then the his- like just the American History Museum. They're all right there. But the garden of the, the Smithsonian uh, castle is just fantastic. I would go there a lot of my, like, you know, lunch breaks. Just kind of sit there. And there's always, like, the same the same few people. We all just kind of sit quietly and let the bees kind of fly around us. So, yeah. Nice. Okay. Uh, anyway, I don't know if you really wanted to know all about that, Zach, but that's what it is. So That was beautiful. You're beautiful. <laughs> thank you spencer i had not looked up what it looked like so um, i might have to make a visit sometime being less than five hours from it these were a group of young men that loved science and loved having fun uh, they had a close camaraderie and contributed countless scientific information to the smithsonian as well as the public we would like to discuss some of the club members and highlight their achievements spencer would you like to go first with 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 spencer yeah sure so yeah, Spencer Baird, or Bard, however you might say his last name. It looks like it's 
Baird on uh, according to Wikipedia. Um, yeah, this guy, when we first were talking about him, uh, talking about this first uh, episode of the club, uh, we all thought that Spencer uh, was... I'm going to refer to him as his first name because my name's also Spencer, so, you know, why not? Um, <laughs> was kind of uh, not in the club, um, but just kind of a... a what did we what did we uh an honorable mention almost but no uh according to one website he's actually considered the co-founder of the club alongside uh someone shine will talk about so this guy he was a powerhouse in terms of the smithsonian itself and that's so i'll kind of talk a little bit about his early life i guess not a whole lot but he was born in 1823 in pennsylvania and I just, I have to read you the first part of his his intro on his wiki, just like word for word, because it's absolutely astounding. So he was an American naturalist, ornithologist, ichthyologist. Uh, for those of you who don't know, ornithology is the study of birds. Ichthyology is the study of fish and herpetologist, study of uh, amphibians and reptiles. So he was all three of those plus a museum curator. Uh, he was the first the first curator to be named at the Smithsonian Institution, uh, eventually served as the assistant secretary and as the secretary from 1878 until his death in 1887. So secretary means a little bit different back then in terms of the Smithsonian than a secretary that you might find today. He wasn't the person, you know, who's answering the phones and um, kind of doing the, the daily stuff. Uh, the secretary the was getting well that's a terrible yes <laughs> unfortunately the movies have made the secretary get the coffee the interns basically but they do so much more than that but the secretary of the smithsonian is specifically serves as like the ceo of the museum and what they do there's been i think 14 of them since since henry was the first one in the, in the late 19th century spencer uh baird was the second one and yeah, they have they have a lot more power than I actually thought they do. Um, they actually sit in on Senate meetings um, every once in a while. They they can uh, they have they sometimes have the floor in the Senate meetings, which is pretty cool. Um, and they kind of control exactly how the the United States government interacts with the Smithsonian Institute, because the Smithsonian Institute is funded by the federal government uh, and serves pretty much everyone in the United States. Uh, but we have branches that kind of branch out in, in different countries around the world and do research all over the place. But the secretary oversees all of that. And they're the ones who kind of interact with the government side of things. Spencer was the second one. Uh, and he basically, he did that till his death, uh, which is pretty crazy to say. Uh, but this guy, so he was a natural historian and he collected things for the Smithsonian. So when he started, there were about 6,000 specimens um, in 1850. And by the time of his death, he managed to get that, you know, not personally, uh, which a lot, he, he did donate a lot of his personal collection and did a lot of collecting. But he also got the Navy, the Army to go out and to collect these things um, while they, ex, uh, you know, did expeditions and military service like throughout the North America. He had them like essentially collect plants and animals. And so he went from he create he grew the collection from six thousand specimens to about two million specimens. Um, now the Smithsonian Institute houses about one hundred fifty four million, but you know there's been some time since he passed away. So, and he published over one thousand works during his lifetime. 
Yeah, absolutely Jeez. crazy powerhouse of a natural historian. The fact that him and I share a name uh, makes me pretty happy about it. There is a statue of Spencer outside of the uh, Smithsonian Castle, which I remember seeing. And at the time, it didn't mean a whole lot to me beyond the fact that his name was Spencer and he was like, you know, the secretary. And now I'm like, oh, my God, he was so much cooler. And so I'm glad I got to kind of research this guy. Yeah. So kind of going back into it, he was born in Pennsylvania. He was a self-trained naturalist when he was younger, similar to what the three of us are, <laughs> and eventually earned his master's degree uh, at Dickinson College. Moved to New York, thought he was going to go to med school, decided that ecology and natural history, well, not ecology, but natural history were his forte, <clears throat> very similar to, to, my, uh, to my track there as well. And yeah, so eventually he essentially got a grant from the Smithsonian Institute to collect specimens from caves throughout southeastern Pennsylvania. Um, and I have to I have to say the amount uh, of his second grant from the Smithsonian, which was seventy five dollars to collect, pack and transport the specimens back to them. Yeah. So he decided, he ended up working for the Smithsonian shortly after getting those grants. And he brought his own personal collection with him, which accounted for about three train cars worth of his own personal collection to bring back to the museum. Unbelievably large personal collection. Yeah, kind of continuing on with this guy. So yeah, uh, he just kind of like ran the, the museum after a little while. Huh. Yeah, the Smithsonian like wouldn't be what it is today. At some point during his tenure there, he, uh, he started implementing live specimens, not just taxidermied specimens, uh, into the castle, um, which eventually created the National Zoo, um, which now the zoo is like its own big zoo north of D.C. just a little bit, or on the north side of, of D.C., I should wait, say. Wait, wait. If I may for a second, what was the first thing he brought back for his as a live specimen? Uh, it didn't say. It didn't oh. say what his like what it was. It just said uh, that he that he started having live specimens like in the castle itself, which eventually grew, and eventually would become the first zoo, like the first national zoo. Okay, well, I think it's safe to assume it's something pretty small. Elephants. Elephants. <laughs> it could, I don't know. Um, I can't. I I can't say it was probably elephants. Um, I would imagine it would be small things, but who knows? Um, I mean, somebody's got to know. I can probably look it up and uh, bring it back later, but that's a good question. Yeah, a, not a whole lot more I want to talk about, but I will preface, or not preface, I will end it kind of with this. Was So Sean alluded that these guys were not nose in books type of guys. Yes, they did. They did a lot of readings, obviously, and they kept up to date with everything. But these guys were out in the field. And in 1842, uh, uh, Baird hiked more than 2,100 miles looking for specimens to, to, uh, to collect. Uh, Where was this? That's nothing. That's not even a full Appalachian Trail. <laughs> that's true. But this guy was also, like, carrying specimens. He was collecting specimens. He was looking for specimens. And that was just in one year alone. I looked it up. Sam and uh, Frodo walked 1,300 miles to get 
to go from the Shire to Mount Doom. So he blew them out of the water, and it took them like it took them three whole long? books. That took them three whole like books. nine hours, right? Yeah, yeah and that's the <laughs> like ed- nine. That's hours. not even like the editor's cut or whatever. <laughs> Eleven hours, I I think, in total of the uh, the director's cut. Special editions. Yeah. Special editions. Yeah. Um. So yeah, these guys were out in the field. I was gonna ask, do, do either of you know how many miles in total you've walked in one year? Can you beat Spencer Beard? Oh, totally. Uh, I cannot. I I, I at, no. at my peak. I was running 80 to 90 miles a week. What is the math there? Five times 52, so... Yeah, let's, let's just say... Get that calculator high... out. Get, oh, that's the wrong app. Oh. Nope, still the wrong let's app. So 85 times 52. 4,400. Okay. I beat him in a year. But you that beat was, him. I was I was running. But yeah, you were literally uh, running, and you weren't looking for stuff. No. Uh, just women at that point, <laughs> which there were not. Bad ones. Is that why you were running? <laughs> yes. After ch- that, chasing but, girls yes. at your all boys college. We had to look somewhere. We we left campus. That's why I was a runner. We had to run away from campus, and then you look because um, once you come back, no, it's back to the sausage fest. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so I, I'm not a runner. I, like, I like hiking. You'll find out soon enough that I'm a big canoer. To me, Spencer Baird hiking that much in one year, 2,100 miles is a lot to me. Oh, it's it's impressive by anyone's standards. Yes, so, yes that, is, that is a long ways to go. Just in looking for stuff. Like, you're not, you're not, you know, you don't have a goal. You're not power hiking. You are kind of slowly walking Yo, you're yeah. looking That's at the, the ground you're... you're like oh shoot cool plant cool bug bird whatever it is like that that's an impressive dedication yeah. to naturalism oh yeah the majority of his day he was he was moving yeah that's... i mean i i wish that was my job i wonder if i if i maybe have beaten him at some point during my my adventures but i never bothered to calculate that out so yeah, who did that for him? Who who counted how many miles he walked? I imagine that he probably just did since he was probably alone a lot of the time. <laughs> this was like before he started working for the Smithsonian. So do we do we have any evidence to verify his accounts? I think he I think he's bluffing. You think he's bluffing? <laughs> I think he's bluffing. All right. Well, maybe we can hold a séance and ask him. Yeah, and you can tell that to his face. <laughs> I all right. What's his name? Hey, Spencer. You're a fraud yes. and a fake. Ooh, you're calling him out. Call him out. Um, Me- the real Mega yeah, this... Club's here now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, this guy was great. He, yeah, like I said earlier, like the Smithsonian literally wouldn't be what it is today without this guy. So, yeah, he kind of kind of built this. So I, I the reason I want to talk about like – to kind of wrap up, um, I suppose I, we've been wrapping this up for a while, this guy. Uh, but he was a big fan of letting the Smithsonian or the, uh, the Megatherium Club kind of do what they wanted to do. But serving as kind of like the CEO, he kind of had the hard, tough position to be like, hey, like, let's keep it down a little bit. Yeah, and specifically his daughter, Lucy, was one of the big advocates of trying to control the boys of the club. And she was the one, I think, who got the, the hens 
Uh, maybe it was hens. I guess chickens might be considered the first animals at the, the, the castle. <laughs> um, she was kind of the one that got the chickens kind of removed and placed somewhere else because she was tired of the, the, the chickens. Um, so that would, have, that would have been Spencer's daughter. I think she was just salty that the boys were singing to Mary. Yep. <laughs> maybe maybe She's, i, I want to so, end this fun that maybe yeah uh <laughs> we'll let that up to her i guess in history so um she yeah so that song. that's that's all she wanted what's that she just wanted a song yeah she just yeah okay well yeah whatever she wanted so uh i can imagine that she held some power uh because of her father um and she probably she was also probably powerhouse and uh herself as well so yeah, so uh, that's Spencer uh, Baird. Um, I'll pass it back to you, Sean, if you want to talk about uh, some of the other really important starter of this club. Yes, definitely. Uh, well, I think this is a good point to take a break. Hey, folks, this is Spencer giving you a trigger warning regarding suicide. Please listen at your discretion. The topic comes up at the 50-minute mark. Yeah, where were we? Uh, we just got done talking about Spencer Baird. Uh, Sean, I believe you were about to pick it up. Yes, uh, I would like to talk about William Stimson, the other co-founder. Um, I don't think there's as much information out there on Stimson as Baird, but um, I'll give a shot at it. Uh, he was born in 1832 in Boston. After high school, this man decided to enter the Cambridge Latin School, which... Um, is very important Nerd. for this position. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, honestly, I wish we had these today, or at least like a class or two about Latin, because I think it'd be super helpful for people like us, um, yeah, some, actually, some naturalists. I remember um, Latin names so much better when I actually know what they mean. Oh, yeah. It, okay, side note, just, um, I guess, uh, talking with people can be very difficult when you're talking about common names of specifically insects but every region of the u.s has a different common name for that insect but if everybody just was on the latin train we 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 would not have communication issues yeah i want to give just a quick example uh ladybug versus lady bird beetle uh, both are the same thing but both can mean different things in different uh areas um yeah, if we just got huh. Latin. Um, I will preface this, like, a lot of people took Latin back in, uh, back in the day. Like, it was, like, a mandatory thing. Like, if you went, to, if you went into higher education, uh, if you went into college, you took Latin, which I kind of wish was still a thing. But it is what it is. So. Oh, absolutely. But, obviously, this, it was very helpful for this guy, William, because it helped him to describe animals, specifically marine animals, later in his life. Uh, marine biology was William's main focus, and he spent a lot of time in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, very jealous of that. His, his position at the Institute was the director of the Department of Invertebrates, so his main focus in uh, marine biology were the marine invertebrates. Once William left D.C. for a position as director of the Academy of Science in Chicago in 1866, the band kind of broke up. The Megatherium Club was no more, so... It started with him and it died with him, unfortunately. But this man gathered one of the most extensive history collections in the U.S. And while at his time at Chicago, 
and then the Great Chicago Fire happens, and almost all of his work was lost. And he died the, the following year from tuberculosis. I Oof. don't think <laughs> what a year. the tuberculosis was related to the fire, but tragic two years in a row there for history. But rather young, uh, 40. That's uh, I don't know if that was great for that time period or what, but maybe all these adventures... It was not. <laughs> oh, okay. Still bad. All right. <laughs> the reason that, like, the common misnomer that people didn't live as long before, like, the advent of, like, modern medicine was that the average time of death was so much uh, skewed to one side because there were so many more people being, bo- like, born and then immediately dying that it was just like, oh, yeah, people didn't live for very long. But it was like if you really take out the fact that so many people died in childbirth, which is horrible in its own right, people lived pretty normal long lives. Yeah, once they got past, like, you know, childhood, basically. Yeah, pretty much. So like Past the age where polio was going to mess them up. Yeah, well, yeah, that too, yeah. <laughs> uh, one of these guys that I was looking at, he lived almost – he lived 89 years old, um, which – like is old but like wasn't that uncommon for the time okay it just like it's like now some people just die young if you did get a disease then you were kind of out of luck if you managed to avoid that then you're a little bit luckier i suppose so gotcha yeah but tb or consumption was a pretty nasty one so poor guy and with from what i've seen from the megatherium club they kind of lived by the rule of uh it's better to burn out than fade away (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah so some species that uh william simpson named included the california sea cucumber the brown box crab the furred sponge crab the jonah crab man I, I feel like i just keep naming crabs this guy really liked his crabs he was uh you might say crabby <laughs> <laughs> call him mr crabs you you know he had like dried specimens all over his office. I totally thought oh, you were yeah. gonna say you know For he sure. had crabs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally this, this man had crabs. Yeah, um, he had crabs all over the place. His walls, <laughs> his wait. his kitchen table, everywhere. There's crabs <laughs> everywhere. Uh, he he also named some snails, and uh, Wikipedia claims he has he named uh, forty different creatures i won't go into further detail on that but they're all marine invertebrates species named after william to honor him include a rare hawaiian goby fish uh, a sun star fish a couple shrimp a fossil arthropod yeah fossils uh, most but mostly marine things with species with a species name being stimpsoni stimpsoni the stimpson that's probably it jeez Nice. Thanks, Zach. But someone decided, eh, this man needs a whole genus of flowering plants. Flowering plants with Stimsonia native to China and Japan. What? Why China and Japan? Where does that come into the equation? So I was like, man, that seems a bit out of place. This American marine biologist (laughs) gets their name on a flower in Asia. So I I kept digging. And I learned that Stimson went on this American expedition in 1853, 1853 to 1855, which also, side note, required two 
ships because the first one sank in a, uh, a, t- a typhoon. <laughs> oh, boy. But it made stops in China, Japan, Siberia, and Kamchatka, which I thought... Oh, wait, sorry. Siberia and Kamchatka are now Russia. For, oh, I was yeah. about to say, where is Kamchatka? Uh, Russia, yeah. So I was like, oh, all right. Uh, well, at least he went there. And then I, I kept I kept reading, and another scientist went with him on this trip, whose name was Charles Wright, and Charles was a botanist. So <laughs> I, I stopped trying to make sense of it because they had a marine biologist and a, a botanist on this trip, and they gave this whole genus of flowering plants to the, the, the water dude, the, the, the ocean biologist guy, so... Someone was just a big fan of William Stimson and wanted him to have some flowers named after him, I guess. Um, what a life. I want some flowers named after me. <laughs> uh, but there were, there was, I, ha- I can't find any crabs named after him, so I think he named all of them. <laughs> there were, every, he named every crab out there. there. There were no crabs left for Mr. Krabs. Um, but yeah, that was some, some highlights about William Stimson, the good old founder of the Megatherium Club. Solid mustache, by the way, if you guys ever look him up. Kind of goals for yeah, like, uh, facial hair in the future. Yeah, I think I can say I can easily say that every guy that I looked up, solid beard, solid mustache. Yeah, facial hair was not uh, in, in want. It might have been a requirement for the club. I'm probably sure so. I think uh, we, we might need to grow out our own facial hair. Yeah, as much as as much as <laughs> I, mean, I, I have a mustache right now. I know. I know my have. girlfriend really loved that. Perfect. <laughs> my my wife is in full support of my mustache. Just just for full. Uh, oh yeah, I'm looking, at, I'm looking at this Megatherium Club photo, and every one of them has a wonderful mustache. Even if not a beard, they have the mustache. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hey. I, I definitely don't – I definitely have, like, the modern, like, close shave. My my partner thinks it's uh, rather itchy, um, but that's okay. Uh, she doesn't mind it beyond that, so. Yeah, it's not her mustache. <laughs> Just don't touch it, I guess, if it's itchy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that – thanks for bringing up that picture, Zach. So um, I, I was reading through Are stuff. Are looking at the same picture? There's only like one picture, so I think so. There's four four guys. Four four dudes, yeah. Yep, yeah, four yep. dudes. The guy so, that I'm gonna talk about's in there. <laughs> yeah. So I won't name everybody that's in this photo for, no, do it, do for it, do anybody it. listening. Well, I was mostly saying that because I don't have it pulled up, so I'm not sure who's in the photo. <laughs> oh, Ooh, I, I can tell you, out. I got it pulled up. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Zach, right, so you, this... you wanna name these four individuals real quick? Yeah, I'll bring this picture up a little bit later too, because it relates to the guy I'm gonna talk about. But there's four men, two of them sitting in chairs, kind of like diagonally facing each other. It's very much posed for a camera. And then there's two guys standing in the back. Uh, the two guys in front are... I can't see their names. I can't see their names. One of them's William oh, Stimson. One, okay, so left to right, the guys sitting in the front are William Stimson and Henry Bryant. And then in the back, standing up, left to right, is uh, Robert Kennicott and Henry Ulke. Uh, four of the like co-founding, you know, integral members of the original Megatherium Club. Mm-hmm. I, I think I'm going to hold off on what I want to say about this because I don't want to spoil it. 
But it's a great photo, and if anybody's listening along and wants to look at it, I, I definitely recommend it. And I think I'll save my comment to see if Zach discusses it when he talks about his person. Ooh, good call. Also, we'll we'll include uh, we'll we'll include a link to uh, to the picture. Yeah, in look the, in the show in notes. The, yeah, show notes. <laughs> Zach, because wanna... we have show notes. <laughs> we, we, we will. I'll, I'll turn it over to Zach now uh, and let okay. you talk. So I am going to start out talking about the man named Robert Kennicott, uh, one of the founding members of the original Megatherium Club. He was born in 1835 in New Orleans and suffered a tragic death at only 30 years old on an expedition in Alaska. Uh, he was termed an American naturalist by Wikipedia. And um, if, if, I, if I can ask, what was the disaster? That is gonna, that's going to come up in my, my presentation, oh, oh. All right. if you will. Um, can I can I also pipe in here and just highlight the fact that uh, Spencer Bard uh, or Baird was uh, Robert Kennicott's kind of like uh, mentor. So yes, you know, not to like brag or anything, but the guy I chose kind of was your mentor. Your guys. Well, he died young, so you might have messed up there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <dude. laughs> oh, you called me out. All right, continue, Zach. Well, I will say Robert Kennicott was he kind of. He was the epitome of live fast, die die young. Um, So if you can imagine, this guy is, he's the son of a horticulturist. So he kind of is exposed to nature from, you know, the point of view of a horticulturist. Uh, But he grew up with no formal education. And he had a lot of health problems when he was growing up, including fainting spells. But he became obsessed with natural history at a very young age, and he kind of trained himself to be what we call now a naturalist. And he was so successful at being a naturalist that as a teenager, uh, when the Smithsonian Museum itself was just six years old, they started getting all these samples and, and stuff from like this weird teenager named Robert Kennicott. Yeah, and he was such a successful you know, natural naturalist that at the age of 21, he helped establish the Chicago Academy of Science. And then a year later, he also established the Natural History Museum at Northwestern University. So like, if you can imagine a guy with no formal education, he just goes outside and he's like, this is so cool. And he starts collecting everything he can, specimens of, uh, well, he was, you know, he was more specifically a herpetologist. So I imagine this kid going out collecting frogs, snakes, salamanders, whatever he's finding, and just sending it to the Smithsonian Museum. <laughs> Do you think he sent them alive or dead? Uh, I'm hoping I'm I'm hoping they were dead, but it could have been part of that live uh, yeah, the, the live sure. specimens. Spencer uh, Spencer Beard was like, "Heck yeah, this is the start of the National Zoo." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Spencer teenagers. Baird's like, "Yo, intern, go get go give me some live specimens." I did see. Um, I, I think it was at the uh, the Minnesota Natural Museum in St. Paul, Natural History Museum in St. Paul. And they had, like, a little exhibit of, like, things that had been sent to them from kids. I mean, granted, like, 
Robert Kennicott was not a child at the time, really. But yeah, they had this whole exhibit of all like this stuff that kids had brought in for for the museum uh, to put on display, and I thought that was really cool. Um, I still I don't know if they still have that exhibit, but I'm sure they do. So that is a really yeah. cool exhibit. I would actually love to see that. Yeah, um, yeah, I think it's kind of right in the start. I think it's there. I'm not. I can't remember a hundred percent, but you have to check it out. So definitely. Yeah. Okay. Well, my notes my notes are a little bit messed up here. But, um, yeah, so this guy is a very accomplished uh, naturalist slash herpetologist at a very young age. And he starts doing expeditions pretty much everywhere from... So he was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, moved to Illinois at a very young age. And I imagine that's where he's catching all these frogs and salamanders and snakes and donating them to the Smithsonian just because. Um, <laughs> I can, I'm just picturing this, this young man just sending boxes to the Smithsonian of live frogs and snakes just be like, <laughs> watch this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like he's, yeah. he's like, yeah, I'll contribute to science, but actually this is funny. Yeah, yeah. Here, here's he's the Bart Simpson the of, uh, of the <laughs> late 1800s. He's actually just uh, pulling pranks this whole time, and like, this guy is great. Let's get him on board. He's like, oh, all right, all right. Oh, oh is, is this all it takes to be a, uh, a national uh, scientist? I wish that was still the case. I'll have hey. <laughs> But from what I, from the research that I found, um, he was not. He was, he was more of a naturalist. They labeled him kind of as a herpetologist. But just to the Smithsonian, he donated 151, quote-unquote, lots of fish to the Smithsonian. I don't know what a lot is, but he donated 151 of them to the Smithsonian, which is, a, to me, that's a lot of fish. If, if it was just one fish, that's, that's 151 fish. I do want to just pipe in and say, like, yeah, odds are he wasn't actually sending in live specimens. Uh, but he also probably wasn't sending in, like, just, like, things he found on the ground. He probably had to prep these because it probably took a few weeks for these specimens to get from Illinois all the way into D.C. So I bet he was probably a pretty good taxidermist if that's what he was doing, like, the study skins or something like that, so... <laughs> or or he was just accounting for the fact that they're dying on the way, and, and poor old Spencer Bard is opening up boxes of dead fish that just... <laughs> <laughs> okay, breaks. no, I was gonna say that he, he did spend, uh, I think it was two years as, I guess, the apprentice of somebody named Jared Potter Kirtland, who basically like showed him how to collect things and prepare things and then i'm imagining that's what he he sent to the smithsonian is this are these creatures these probably mostly herpetological animals you know for salamanders frogs lizards herps um yeah he sent those to the smithsonian pre-prepared and everything he's not i doubt he's sending live animals in a box to the uh, Smithsonian Museum. Okay, fine. You're 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 right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Continuing on, he was such a successful naturalist that he was actually chosen to head what was called the Western Union Telegraph Expedition to Alaska. 
And I don't exactly know what they were looking for in Alaska, but that's actually where he died. <laughs> but he, over his entire lifetime of, you know, 30, 30 short years, he contributed hundreds of specimens to the Smithsonian, and he was a very important, uh, he played a very important role in creating probably their natural history museum. And he very mysteriously died on this expedition in Alaska. So he went out really early in the morning, and when he didn't come back for breakfast, which, I mean, that shows how early in the morning he was leaving, his, his colleagues got worried about him, and they went to go find him. And they eventually found him on the shoreline of the Yukon River, just laying on a rock, head over his eyes, and he was foaming at the mouth. Head over his eyes? Hat. Hat over his eyes. Oh, sorry. hat. Oh, oh. Hat. Hat over his eyes. He's like clutching his chest with his hands and he's foaming at the mouth. And normally what Robert Kennecott would do is when he would go out on expeditions, he would carry a bottle of strychnine with him to help him dispatch of any, you know, small critters that he collected. And when they found him, that bottle was not on him. So, what they thought, and for what they have thought for the last 150 years, is that Robert Kennecott drank a, a lethal dose of this strychnine poison and just chucked the bottle into the river and committed suicide that way. Oh. Um, which has now been proven to not be the case. Uh, all of his, All of his friends at the time and his... You know, ancestors now uh, realize that he he's not that kind of guy. And granted, I know that it's not always the people that show it outwardly are the ones to commit suicide. But uh, none of his colleagues or his friends or family really saw this as who Robert Kennecott was. And in that photo we were talking about earlier... Um, I think it kind of displays how Robert Kennecott was the glue and maybe the instigator of all of the shenanigans that the Megatherium Club committed. And in this picture, I mean, you know those old-timey pictures where nobody's ever smiling. It's a really you know, serious sort of uh, occasion to take a picture of oneself. You can see in this picture the two men sitting in front. Uh, what were their names again? Uh, William Stimson and Henry Bryant. Uh, they're sitting in the front, you know, stone-faced. And then on, as you're looking at it, your right, Henry Uki, also stone-faced. But then you see Robert Kennecott, arm around Henry Uki, staring him dead in the eye, trying to make him laugh. And I, I think that's like the perfect, <laughs> the perfect uh, depiction of who Robert Kennecott was. Kind of, you know, like I said, the instigator of all of the shenanigans, and it seems like he had the most camaraderie of, of the group, and he was one of the most beloved members of the group. Um, so, uh, where he grew up is now called The Grove, and the director of The Grove, plus, you know, Robert Kennecott's ancestors, wanted to look into... How Robert Kennecott died because they did not believe that this was a suicide and 150 years later 
They dug up Kennecott's bones, and they took they they sampled his hair, uh, tissues, and like and his bones, and they did not find you know doses of strychnine in his in his tissues essentially, and they were able to conclude that Robert Kennecott. Oh, they also went through his childhood records and accounts, and I'm guessing doctor records, because they found they found out about these fainting spells that he had, and they were actually able to conclude that he had heart disease from a young age that just went. I mean, it's the 1850s. Like nobody, there's no there's no doctors that can tell you that you have heart disease at a young age, and it. They concluded that he had a heart attack on the side of the Yukon River, and that's how he died. And they discovered that 150 years later. That's crazy. And I think it is actually a beautiful irony that his bones are now on display at the Smithsonian Museum. That's so oh. cool. I, I can imagine that he would want his bones on display. Like Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. I want my bones on display. Um, I don't know if this counts as a last will and testament, but uh, hear me now, Smithsonian Institute. You can put my bones on display if you want. Yeah, you can put Spencer Stout's bones on display uh, right next to Robert Kennecott. Perfect. I want, I want my arm around his, and I want to be looking at him. Just as how he's looking at um, Henry uh, Henry uh, Uke, I think is how you pronounce his name. Um, so yeah, very cool. That's yeah. super wow. unfortunate and- that he passed away at only thirty. Um, I know that all three of us are thirty. At- <laughs> yeah, I, I am thirty at the time of this recording. Ah, okay, well I'm only twenty nine, so uh, uh, I'm still a year young left. man. Um, but, but uh, I would I would like to talk about the honors that have been bestowed upon the legacy of Robert Kennecott. Oh, yeah, of course. Yes. So he has two fish named after him. I don't know anything about these. One is a striped-tailed darter named Ithiostoma kennecotti, and the other is a whitefish named Corrigonus kennecotti. There is also a glacier named after him near uh, St. Elias National Park. And a town, uh, the town of Kennecott, is named after him in Alaska. Hmm. But I think the the most uh, heart wrenching and touching uh, honor that was bestowed upon him was a memoir that was written about him by his friends of the from the Megatherium Club in the journal, uh, the Journal of Illinois State Historical Society. And they, they talk about their memories of Robert Kennecott, how much he contributed to science and the Smithsonian Museum. And I would just like to give a quote from them and, uh, tell, and you know, kind of paraphrase a, a story that they, they told about the late Kennecott. Uh, so one of his expeditions was to prove positively the existence of the, quote, poisonous serpent called the water moccasin in southern Illinois. And he was he offered $5 to the first living specimen which should be brought to him. And I would like to say that the key word in this quote is the first living specimen because that was quickly awarded to some guy who brought him a water moccasin. <laughs> and he paid this guy five bucks 
uh, and you know took the took the water moccasin. I don't even know what he did with it, but uh, he took it as a, as a sample as a specimen. But uh, another guy did not know that this reward had already been paid, and the, <laughs> the way that this memoir talks about it is that a strapping young sucker, for which uh, young Illinois Southern Illinois men were. Uh, I guess affectionately called suckers. They, <laughs> they, he brought uh, Kennecott a second specimen, and when Robert Kennecott explained to him that the reward was only for the first specimen, which had already been paid, the strapping sucker challenged him to a fight and threatened to flog him. So what <laughs> Kennecott does is he walks over, grabs the snake behind the head so it can't bite him. And then he starts waving it around and uses the f***ing snake as a weapon to fight this guy. <laughs> okay, very cool. Very cool. So, yeah, as you can guess, the guy immediately backs down and leaves and is never heard from again. <laughs> yeah, but Robert Kennecott was such a was such a Megatherium Club member that he just grabs the snake and uses it. It's a, this is a deadly venomous snake. And he uses it as a weapon to, <laughs> to make this guy just go away. Jeez, good. I want to. I want to use a water moccasin as a weapon. Yeah, you live in North Carolina. Go grab one. There are copperheads everywhere. Ooh. Yeah, copperheads aren't. I mean, they're not deadly. What do they kill? Right? Like two or three people every ten years, or something like that. I haven't looked up the stats on that. I could be that one or two per people. It's not very much, uh, Copperheads. I mean, I would still run if somebody threatened me. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. I'm gonna mess with it. <laughs> oh, you're you're wielding snakes? Yeah, I'm out of here. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Very good. Okay, um, you know, Zach, as you've been describing this guy, even before you got to that part, I was like, man, I, like we should all embody the spirit of Robert Kennecott. Yeah, uh, I think I Robert think Kennecott really is should. the guy that um, we should embody. Yeah, for sure. We should model our own lives after Robert Kennecott. But let's not <laughs> pass away prematurely at the age of 30. So, yeah. yeah, I'd like to live at least another year. <laughs> at least. Oh, God. Just one. <laughs> good, good. I'll, be, I'll be Robbie <laughs> next June. Well, okay. S Spencer, do you do you want to take the next yeah. person? Yeah, I could take the next person for sure. So uh, I got two more people I want to talk about. I probably could just do them in tandem. Um, I don't have a whole lot on the second guy. Okay. Um, I did a little bit more on the first guy. But again, referring back to that photo, Henry Olke. Uh, Olke? Um, I'm not quite sure how you say his name. It's, it's Yulke. Ulki. That sounds more like Dutch. So this guy, he was born in 1821. He was born in Prussia. Do either of you know what Prussia is? Uh, it's where the precious Russians live, right? Wasn't that where the Persians were from? Nope. Uh, it's a German state uh, located in the northern European plain, according to Wikipedia. What? It was essentially German. part of the German Empire in the 1800s. Um, and, yeah, it kind of dissolved in the 1870s following um, years of revolutions and changes throughout Europe in which Henry Olke was a part of. So 
This guy, he joined the the uh, what was called the the uh, the German Revolution, essentially in the late 1840s, um, where he was injured, he was imprisoned, and he eventually was basically kicked out of Germany or Prussia at the time, kind of this northern German area. And so he moved to the U.S. And I have to just do a quick shout out to this guy. Uh, so one of his first jobs in the United States was designing banknotes. Uh, banknotes. So essentially, he designed money. I tried to look up like what his designs looked like, and I like it doesn't really give you any like links or any descriptions of what his specifically looked like, which is kind of unfortunate. I collect old currencies and old money and coins and stuff like that. So I was like, dang, this guy's pretty cool too. Uh, but <laughs> he's cool, the, the more I read like about me. this, <laughs> he's just like me. <laughs> this Henry guy who's like fought in a revolution and was imprisoned. He's just like me. Um, so no, um, but anyway, but him and his brothers eventually moved to Washington, D.C., and they were photographers, essentially, of the U.S. government. So pretty much during this time in the mid-1800s, if something was photographed, it was probably by the Olkays. And, for example, I just want to highlight two like major photographs that are talked about with this family. One is that Henry himself photographed Mary Lincoln after Willie Lincoln, Abraham, and Mary's son after he died. So there's a famous photo of her mourning him, and that was actually taken by Henry. And then it goes on to immediately say within his own Wikipedia that his brother took the famous photo of the room where Lincoln died. So we all know that Lincoln was assassinated in Ford's Theater, and he passed away a few days later. um, Wait, back up a second. (laughs) Lincoln was assassinated. Yeah, let me tell you, dude, <laughs> rough stuff for the U.S. Uh, 1865, uh, yeah, poor Lincoln. Yeah, like, one of the few presidents that I think everybody but racist people... Uh, the South? Like ...confederate flags. Not even just the South anymore. Anywhere. Uh, anywhere in the U.S. at this point. But anyway, um, good Americans uh, love Lincoln, right? So... Um, yeah, but his brother took the photo of the room where Lincoln died. It's a pretty famous photo if you haven't seen it. It's just, I mean, it's just literally a picture of, like, the room where Lincoln died, but it's very melancholy. It'll um, be linked in the show notes. It'll be linked in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. we got to get a hold of those. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how we're going to do this. Um, anyway, that's just what podcasters say, so I said it. So Henry, in addition to being a photographer, he was also very much a painter. So he studied painting painting yeah painting throughout europe uh before his time in the revolutions and when he moved to the u.s and eventually to dc he was the one kind of painting a lot of u.s government officials and one of his paintings still hangs in the white house of president ulysses s grant uh, as general grant still hangs in the white house today but i will preface that any painting of uh, the members of the Megatherium Club were likely due to this guy. Two, he did two specifics. He did William Stinson and he did Robert Kennicott. Um, so if you've seen those paintings, those were both done by this guy, Henry uh, Ulke. 
Are you guessing, like, what the heck did this guy besides painting the members have to do with the Megatherian Club? Yeah, because that's so far where we've my talked mind about. How does, right, how we've does... talked about naturals, right? Uh, this guy was a photographer and a painter. Uh, well, let me tell you what. This guy was a naturalist. Um, oh, whoa. So I shook it. Shook it. In his free times, this guy was a collector. And you guys are going to be ecstatic about this. He collected beetles specifically. Oh, yeah, yeah. buddy. So, uh, yeah, um, he collected beetles his whole career. Like, whenever he was not painting or photography, like, you know, doing photography, he was collecting beetles. He eventually donated his collection, not to the Smithsonian, what? but to the Carnegie Museum, um, where it still resides. A description, and I quote, is one of the largest and most perfect collections of the beetles of North America in existence. So wow, uh, his awesome. beetle is, con- or his beetle collection is considered collections from major expeditions. It's still at the Carnegie, Carnegie Museum. Um, you can still go see his specific specimens that he collected, which is one as fascinating from uh, from a specimen standpoint. That you know, this guy was collecting these beetles throughout North America whenever he traveled, uh, pinning them, bringing them back, curating them, and essentially donating them. And you can still look at them today, but it's still considered one of the largest beetle collections ever collected. That's amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm sure we're at the point where some of the beetles that he collected don't exist anymore. As we are all aware of, and by uh, not very many people when I say all of us, that we're in the sixth great uh, extinction event within Earth's history. And that is being kind of fronted by amphibians, reptiles, and insects. So mm-hmm. uh, I would like to go see his, his collection someday. But, yeah, that, I mean, that's why he was kind of included. Like, he was an artist, and he was a, a curator of beetles, which I think we can all appreciate. Yeah, so that was uh, Henry Ulke. Um Yeah, he, he passed away in 1910. This is the guy that died when he was 89 years old. Nice. Lived a long and prosperous life. Almost three times as long as Kennecott. Yeah, which is unfortunate. He, but he painted Kennecott, so yeah. at least he got to uh, ex, uh, you know, exist with him at some point. So, Cool. I guess I'll continue real fast and just talk about Fielding Meek, a person we haven't talked about quite yet. I kept thinking of this guy when you were talking, Zach, about Robert and having just like lifelong issues in health. And so this guy was born in Madison, Indiana. Who who's who's from there? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Who else is from there? Uh, that would be me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, shout out to the Midwest guys. So he was born in uh, Madison, uh, Indiana. In his early life, he became a merchant, essentially an entrepreneur of type. And um, he had a few failed investments in Wisconsin and Kentucky, but those essentially went under and his health started to go in terms of like, he started going deaf at an early age. But one thing he really liked doing was fossil hunting. And he eventually turned this into a career. And in 1848, so he was born in 1817. So quite later on in his life, he started working for the USGGST. I want to compare that, that to the USGS, which we all know as the U- United States Geological Survey. This was kind of the precursor to that because not every state was a state yet. So this was 
the United States Geological and Geographic Survey of the Territories. Because before states became states, they were referred to as territories. We still have territories as part of the United States, Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico. Uh, um, U.S. Virgin Islands, and which, you know, I strongly believe that if they want statehood, they should get it. Um, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll die on that hill. But anyway, um, so yeah, this guy, yeah, he started working for essentially the USGS. And he worked throughout Iowa, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. And eventually kind of turned that into a career working for the New York State Museum uh, of Natural History doing fossil surveys in North Dakota under James Hall. And as he continued this, he got better and better at his paleontological surveys. And after fighting, I guess, with James Hall, I don't know the context of their argument. It didn't really talk about it in his like um, biography that I read. Um, but anyway, he had some fights with James Hall, essentially moved to D.C., where he continued doing these research surveys for the Smithsonian working under Hayden. And yeah, so he was just a paleontologist. That's what he liked to do. He liked to go out and he liked to search for specifically like invertebrates uh, within the fossil beds of the, the Midwest. And yeah, so he had... Uh, his his Wikipedia kind of mentioned like or no was this his, no this would have been in his biography um, his one of his last works is regarded as like the most important work of his life it's a six volume essentially series that he wrote for the USGGST uh, and it contains over six hundred pages of text and four hundred oh or no sorry forty five full page illustrations. of um, essentially surveys of paleontological finds throughout the Midwest. Can you imagine writing 600 pages on the invertebrates found in the Midwest? (laughs) No. No, I cannot. I cannot imagine that. What a career. Um, You'd have to be really into it if you wanted that. But yeah, so that, that was Fielding Meek. He did a lot. He did a lot of work. Some things he did unpaid, um, which is pretty fascinating. Other things he did paid. He passed away, and somebody like wrote a memoir to be published at the Smithsonian, like in remembrance of him, twenty years after he died. And essentially, was like, "Hey, uh, we all knew this guy. We all liked this guy. Let's. I want to write a report on his life, this short biography." And that's kind of what I've read for, for, for his stuff, in addition to his wiki. But one thing I noticed is that all the people that I looked up, Henry, uh, Henry Ulke, uh, Fielding Meek, and Spencer Beard, like all, in addition to being scientists and naturalists, were just amazing artists. And what happened to that side of, uh, of science, like being able to illustrate what you're finding? Well, yes, I think that we, was an important continue. skill for those people. Like right. nowadays, we have a camera, like a very good camera in our pocket. Which at that time, you know, that you didn't have that option. That you had to be able to illustrate what you see. I yeah, and like I yes, of course, cameras make it easier to like actually photograph and get everything. And uh, but there's something about like being like having to draw something and being forced to like look at the details and try to emulate them i think i think it's just a is an art form that's been lost i mean nowadays if you have like an art illustrator or a scientific illustrator like that's a specific sub field within within the science like you you aren't this and that you're just this zach you didn't take the art illustration in grad school did you i did not i am 
I would I would like to say that I am one of the least artistic people <laughs> that you'll ever meet. Okay. Zero okay. zero creativity. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, in Zach, uh, I think I th- you're I think you're creative. Oh, thank you, <laughs> Sean. You don't have to you don't have to lie to the poor guy. Sometimes you don't have to lie sometimes. to our audience. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so. Yeah, I don't know. I thought these guys were pretty cool. Completely different lives, but still ended up in the same place, doing the same thing, hanging out with each other, bettering science for all of the world. All right, I'll I'll pass it on. I don't know who wants to go next. Um, I'll, I'll I'll take control here. Uh, uh, should we Should we break right now? Oh, wait, this this is probably a good time for another break. Yeah, yeah let's a, break. Yep, a good time to break, and we'll we'll wrap this this up pretty quick here. We'll, we'll come back. All right, welcome back, guys. Um, I'm going to talk about Edward Drinker Cope next, and I to me, uh, he was probably the only individual on this list that I knew before uh, looking into the Megatherium Club more. Um, born in 1840, I now now some of you may not have heard of him before. But uh, due to my love of dinosaurs, this is a name I've heard since I was a child. Cope was a zoologist, herpetologist, ichthyologist, comparative anatomist, and of course, a paleontologist. As we like to say today, a naturalist. (laughs) Or a nerd, no. (laughs) (laughs) He published his first paper at the age of 19 and described himself, it seems like, as a child prodigy. He's like... Yeah, I'm good, guys. This is this is it. <laughs> He's good and he knows it. <laughs> His papa wanted him to be a good old boy and uh, be a farmer, but he had scientific dreams. Um, and my God, did he go hard in the scientific paint, if you will? Um, this man published <laughs> this man published over 1,400 papers in his 57 years of life. So again, not one of the longer living individuals out there, but. Wait, wait, wait. How long did he live? 57. Oh, that's not so bad. It's longer than some. Not as long as others. But 1,400 papers. Jeez. But, I mean, I'm not sure if, like, writing so many papers is, like, correlates to, like, having an early death, you know? I I remember grad school being... published and perished. (laughs) Grad school was not... uh, I don't think for any of us, a great time in our lives, the amount of stress to publish one thing. And this yeah. guy did it 1,400 times, but maybe he didn't have, you know, advisors telling him what to do. But <laughs> <laughs> through those sub-competitors... If I, were to, if I were to rank all of the years of my life, the two years that I was in grad school, I'd probably rank the lowest. Wasn't it three? Uh, we don't have to, we don't have to go that. <laughs> we, yeah. we didn't have to go there. Oh, sorry. sorry. Below the belt. <laughs> two don't and worry. a half. All of us two and and half. took more than two years. <laughs> Wait, which one of us has a thesis? All right. So, continuing Ooh. on. It is unpublished. Um, though some competitors of uh, Cope would argue over the validity of his work, you know, uh, you know, numbers doesn't necessarily mean they were good papers. <laughs> that didn't really stop him from naming over a thousand vertebrate species that range from fishes to dinosaurs. And yes, 
for people listening, fishes is a word. It uh, is used to describe multiple species of fish. Am I right, guys? You're right, yeah. Uh, right. Fish refers to uh, a, the plural of the same species versus fishes. You have, you know, I don't know, bass and uh, pike and... How many, how many species and... of fish can you name, Spencer? I can name fishes, a few. Fishes, I should say. Uh, yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, not a whole... Well, I don't know. I've never thought about it. So I'll get back to you on that one. <laughs> I won't go into great detail on this man's impressive history, but we would we would probably need a few episodes to discuss that because this, this guy's got some huge... Um, what did I want to say? Uh, cojones. What'd you say? Cojones. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he was involved in the Bone Wars. Um, and it, it was a huge rivalry, I'd say, between Cope and a man named Charles Marsh. Um, and it was also known as the Great Dinosaur Rush. Uh, during this time, fossil hunting was huge and it was just a race to see how many dinosaurs and how many fossils you could collect and describe and these two were at basically at each other's throats they were constantly trying to outdo each other ton multiple multiple expeditions to the american west at one point marsh bribed people to give fossils to him instead of cope cope reconstructed an elasmosaurus which for our viewers or listeners, uh, it is a type of plesiosaur. Think uh, the Loch Ness monster, but poor Cope put the head on the end of the tail instead of the end of the neck vertebra. Which, it, it in his uh, defense, it, it probably looks like it should go there. You know, the the, the neck of these things is yeah. five five times longer than the tail. And yeah, as an early paleontologist, I could see that I could easily see that mistake happening. Oh, yeah, it's uh, most animals today have longer tails than they do necks, with the exception of giraffes. Is that is? Can anybody that, think of something else? Yeah, I can't think of. I think that's like the exclusive exception, and as far as I can think of. Okay, um, but Marsh was quick to be like, "Dude, you're you're wrong." And it led to an argument where they brought in an outsider, um, and the uh, whose name was Osborne, I believe, uh, Henry Osborne, and he was like, "No, nah, I'm I'm pretty sure it's uh, it's on the wrong end there, Cope," and he would then go on to publish a paper just describing how Cope was wrong in his description of this. So there's one of. Cope's papers that got published that was already proven wrong. Um, Claws out. Damn. <laughs> so, you know, 1400. Let's take that down to 1399 papers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but they, between Cope and Marsh, they discovered over 130 species between them and provided countless contributions to science. And again, we could have an entire episode over the Bone Wars. Maybe we will in the future. I mean, who, who's to say? Easily could. I think there needs to be a movie over this. If there isn't already, I, I'm not too sure. I don't know all the movies out there. There is a book. It's written by Michael Crichton. It's called uh, Dragon Teeth. And I think it was like a, uh, a book he started before he passed away. And then his 
publishing company, family, whoever kind of uh, wrapped things up and then published it because it definitely came out after he passed away. Um, it's it's a great book though. Recommend it. It's fictional, but it's it follows a character kind of like stuck in the middle of the Bone Wars. It's a great book. You've re- you've read it? I read half of it. Yeah, I th- honestly wasn't going to say it, but I, I think I'm in the same boat here. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great half book that I've read. I just the first really half of that book books. is great. <laughs> I can't talk about the second half, but the first half, mwah, chef's kiss. And well, I, go, go I ahead. haven't read any of it, so I'm not even half as cool as you guys. But I did look it up. Um, there is no movie about it, but there is a drunk history on it. Ooh, um, I should listen to that. Basically, what we're doing now. <laughs> but you know who I think would be a great Edward Cope in, in a movie, uh, based based on his pictures that I, I find on the internet. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. Ooh, do you see it? I don't know if you guys have seen pictures. I, of... I, I I don't have a picture of you know Edward Cope pulled up in front of me. But yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> No, I got, I got one, and yeah, I could see it. Yep, for sure. Edward Cope. Yeah, yeah, I could see it. I could yeah, see now, it, right? Now, who's going to play Marsh? I could not come up with that. I, I'm, I'm bad with actress names, but... John Goodman? Yeah. I feel like they're from two different generations, but they could, they could, uh, they could square off in the Bone Wars. Fine, hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, to, be, to be decided... But I, knowledge of pop culture is not uh, up to snuff for this conversation. <laughs> no, we'll, we'll stick to the science. <laughs> so, so as I said, he was uh, one of the younger side. I mean, he died around his midlife. Um, but he started suffering from what he said was cytosis, which is a urinary tract infection. Syphilis. Yeah, that's... Close, but <laughs> close. <laughs> so he he was often like bedridden, and I, I, I'm he not. Didn't pee? I I don't. I I might, to be honest, never been in those shoes before. Can't can't judge. You never had, you never had syphilis before. <laughs> I've never had syphilis. I've never had a urinary tract infection. <laughs> um, but he would prescribe himself large amounts of, per Wikipedia, morphine. Oof. Belladonna and formalin, which is <laughs> wow, you know, close to formaldehyde, and it's it's what they often use to preserve specimens. So, you know, maybe not the best thing. So he was probably looking at like the stuff that these other guys were like wet preserving their specimens, and was like, you know what, well, I can't pee that, that well <laughs> if I drink that. <laughs> Maybe I'll feel better. (laughs) He's like, these specimens have been looking good for a long time. Maybe I need to look good for a long time. And then took it. Um, But (laughs) unfortunately, I don't think it helped his case. Um, And when... No way. (laughs) Henry Osborne visited him on April 5th, which... uh, Side note, he died on April 12th, which is my birthday, so, you know, maybe, you know, we're connected Ooh. with that. Ooh. You know, you know, 
But uh, so he, he visited him a week before he died. And, you know, he was concerned about his health, concerned about what he's been prescribing himself. Like, trying to, you know, give him that hard love. Bro, you're probably not doing yourself any favors here. And Cope is such a paleontologist, such a scientist, that he was very into pressing Osborne about his views on the origin of mammals instead. He, he didn't care that his friend was, you know, worried about his health. He wanted to know what his opinions were on evolution. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> uh, it was even uh, still giving lectures from his bedside before passing away. But... What a man. Yeah, he was not... He, he didn't die... Um, giving up what he loves, I guess. Uh, he continued with it until he died. But a few notable dinosaurs named by Cope during this whole Bone Wars uh, fiasco include the, the Camarasaurus, the Amphicelius, and uh, Celiophysis. I know that one. That, that one's easy. I'm not sure what the Amphicelius is. Um, Intent. What'd you say? Uh, it's, uh, I said Google it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amphicolius. Amphicolius. I think it's like a tiktalic type looking deal, uh, isn't it? Oh, it's, uh, it's a sauropod. Oh, yep. never mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. Not even close. <laughs> Seems to be rather large as a lot of sauropods. So yeah, a guy that loves paleontology had a gift from an early age and a great mustache again a lot of drama and produced a lot of papers but we could probably agree maybe not all of them were the best uh what is it uh, quantity quality over quantity was not his <laughs> <laughs> hey you like he went for the shotgun method of research. I appreciate that. I mean, you so. shoot fourteen hundred, you're you're gonna produce. You know, some of them are gonna land. <laughs> Something will more, land. Yeah, more than I have, so I can't speak. <laughs> that. That's yeah, way more than I have. Uh, but yeah, I I could probably research this guy for a long time and be fascinated by more stuff. But uh, well. Maybe that will be the theme of one of our episodes. Will be dinosaurs described by this guy, it, it, or just it, the Bone Wars? Just yeah, I feel like oh, by yeah, this guy in Marsh, just talk about the Bone Wars. Oh yeah, yeah I, that, I could that, see that would, it. That would be fun. Cool, cool. All right, uh, Zach, you, you still have uh, one person, two people. I, I got a couple of people I can talk about. All right. I might, uh, I might talk about them pretty quickly because especially the first one named Henry Bryant, I really couldn't find a ton about, especially relating to the Megatherium Club. The most, the most I found about him is being a, a part of the Megatherium Club, which we should know. He is one of the four people in that founding members photograph that we've been talking about. And I nice. still could not find much about him in relation to the Megatherium Club. The most that I found was like 
you know, da-da-da-da-da, after the Civil War, around the time when he became associated with the Megatherium Club. And that was it. That was, that was all I found. Okay. Can Sounds I, like a trip to the I, Smithsonian is in our future. Can I what? stop you there for a second there? Oh, yeah. okay, one, yes. If you guys want to come out to North Carolina and then drive five hours with me, I'd love to go to the Smithsonian with you guys. Uh, other side notes, if we haven't like made it obvious by now, the time period that these guys are like going on expeditions, chasing each other down the hallway in potato sacks, it, it is it is a civil war. So yeah, like we the, have the civil war in the backdrop for yeah. all of this. The whole the whole country is like unrest. There's you know north versus south. There's you know, slavery going on. You know in parts of the country. This is the time period that we're talking about here. While these dudes are just adventuring, gathering science. And doing what they do best, and I—I I mean, I can't imagine how you know, maybe side on the side stressful this could be, stressful time period for the for the nation, but for these guys, and I, I think yeah. it's just important to like know the setting of when these guys. I would also like to know that the two guys that I'm about to talk about actually served in the Civil War for the Union side. Nice, and Good. both as surgeons. <laughs> Weirdly enough. Oh. Yeah, they okay. were both surgeons, like, serving for the Union, <laughs> which I was kind of crazy, actually. It's, I was just thinking, I was like, man, nobody we've talked about so far has, ser- what, like, served in the Civil War. We had, you know, Henry Ilke was in the, the German Revolution, but that was it. Um, but, ooh, fascinating. Continue. Yeah. Okay. So, Henry Bryant. He was born in May 1820 in Boston, and he actually died at the age of 47 in Puerto Rico, of all places, Ooh. as also sort of as part of an expedition. Not Whether or not it was for the Megatherium Club is uh, unknown to me at this point, but I like to think it was. I, I like to think it was part of the, the Megatherium Club. He died for um, the cause. He died. He died for the cause for exploration and the advancement of science and naturalism. But Henry Bryant uh, actually didn't really start out in you know the naturalist side of things or like even nature really. Uh, he actually got a degree in medicine from the Harvard Medical School in 1840. So you know this guy is smart. And then um, after he got his degree, he traveled to France to study at a hospital there. Uh, and then his health started, his own personal health started deteriorating. So what did Henry Bryant do? He joins the French army and becomes a surgeon in Algeria, <laughs> as, <laughs> as any of us would do. Yep, yep. Yeah. Okay. So he, he serves in the French army as a surgeon and then... You know, after that, I guess his health, you know, comes back. Like, he, he's good to go. He is a stallion. So he comes back to America, and he's becomes a surgeon again in Boston. And then, his what do you know? His health starts deteriorating again. So, what does he do? He enlists in the 20th Regiment of the Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry in the Civil War. And uh, he quickly be he's he's pretty experienced and a well-renowned surgeon, so he quickly becomes promoted to the brigade surgeon. And you know, honestly, there's not a whole lot of information other than this about him, but 
as we as I've been talking about, he is a well-renowned surgeon in intense battlefield situations. But that doesn't really relate to, you know, naturalism or the Megatherium Club. But Henry Bryant is holding a secret this whole time. He is secretly obsessed with ornithology. And after the Civil War ends, he travels back to France and he buys, I'm going to butcher this name, but he buys Frédéric de La Fresnier's collection of birds. I have no idea how to say that name, honestly. I You crushed it. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry to anybody who's in this French. But this, he, he buys this collection of birds that includes between eight and nine thousand specimens of European birds. And he brings it back to America and donates it to the Boston Natural History Society. And the unboxing and remounting of this collection alone took an entire year for him. That's to it? Do. That's yeah, it? it? That's all. It just took him. Yeah, just to like unpack took him a whole year. Hey, hey, that's as it. someone that has moved multiple times, I understand. <laughs> I still have boxes. <laughs> yeah. I, I can sympathize with that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah other than you know just buying this big ass collection from france he does his own ornithological collecting everywhere from ontario and labrador up in canada down to cuba jamaica and puerto rico uh, and he was one of the first american ornithologists to actually like collect in the bahamas uh, unfortunately, he died in 1867 due to a brief illness in Puerto Rico. Um, and as far as I can tell, he has 10 bird species named after him, uh, of which I will not go into detail because I don't know any of them. They just kind of look like little songbirds to me. I'm not an, I'm not an ornithologist. I apologize out to there, all there, of the bird, the bird nerds out there. there. There's someone offended right now, but that's all right. Oh yeah, a bird nerds go. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, <laughs> there's no doubting that. So hard. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that is Henry Bryant. And if you'll allow me to talk about my my last person, or I can wait. I can wait. Uh, no, I think go for it. Okay, I'll talk about my last person, uh, Ferdinand Hayden. Uh, this was the longest living member member of the Megatherium Club that I uh, researched. He lived to the ripe old age of fifty eight. Okay, all right, all right. So I I, <laughs> I want to go not rescind what I said earlier. Like that, <laughs> like people live to ripe old ages. This this Megatherium Club seemed to have died <laughs> just young. I like. I think live fast, die young. one person lived above 60 and he lived almost 90. So he's the outlier of this group. But I will stand like people didn't tend. Yes, people died young. Obviously, everybody we've talked about almost <laughs> has died young. But people did live to old age. People were dying just always in their like 20s and 30s, even though poor Robert Kennecott did. But anyway yeah okay ripe old age of whatever 58 58 perfect yeah here we go ferdy if only i could sing for delicious (laughs) uh so yeah ferdinand hayden 
born in 
pretty nerdy. I'm so, I'm so the most American thing one can do is go America. to a national park and listen to jazz music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very uh, good. I think we need a, a a sticker that says that. Okay, yeah. Uh, well, you know, my brother owns a sticker company, so easy, <laughs> easy. Like I could literally text him tomorrow, and we'll have stickers. So perfect, perfect. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, that'll be posted in the the merch store pretty soon. Uh, anyways, uh, back to Ferdy Hayden. Um, his geological expertise actually helped him uncover uncover numerous fossils that are actually still housed in the Smithsonian Museum. I don't know which fossils they are. But uh, the paleontologist Joseph Leedy actually obtained most of his fossil specimens through the explorations of Ferdinand Hayden, uh, not Sweet. through like himself. <laughs> Sweet. And then uh, other things that are named after Ferdinand Hayden are Hayden Valley in Yellowstone. Uh, but that's actually become a little contentious recently because Native American leaders have called for it to be renamed. Uh, something about Ferdinand Hayden calling for extermination of tribal people that disagree with the U.S. government. You know, yada, that'll yada, do yada. it. Yeah, that'll, <laughs> yeah. that'll do it. That. Yep. I'm not gonna say <laughs> he was like Easy the best decision. person in the world. I'm just saying he <laughs> he was he was good at geology. Okay, yeah, we can appreciate his geological contributions, not his racist contributions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there gross. We go. Yeah, easy change. So, there we go. Yeah. Uh, there's also a town in Colorado named after him, Hayden, Colorado. Uh, he's also got a sedge, land snail, and then his good friend, Robert Kennecott, actually named a subspecies of garden, or garter snake after him. Thamnophis radix hedenii. Aw. Yeah. I need a friend to name something after me. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> I ain't naming shit uh, after you. Uh, <laughs> or they'll um, just think it's like something else. <laughs> Somebody so else. So if, if you know uh, uh, a taxonomist, like all you have to do is ask. Just be like, hey, name something after me. Yeah, of like all the taxonomists I've ever known and worked with, they're like they, you know, and uh, we we work in entomology, right? So insects, small, inconspicuous, easy to find new species comparatively to you know um, mammals, mammals mm-hmm. or uh, or whatever. And yeah, like yeah, I've known like they've like run out of people to like name specimens after. And it's like, okay, well, choose me. Um, <laughs> so, but maybe it's about time that we discover a new species. I'd rather discover like a new species of dinosaur and then definitely name that. I would name one after you, Sean, and then I'd have to name one after Zach. Oh, see, I'm first. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, Zach. It's nothing against you, even though I've known you longer. Um, <laughs> it's just that Sean seems to deserve the dinosaur more. <laughs> but if I find an insect first, I'll name that after you, Zach. Yeah, you better. Especially if it's a wood boring beetle. A wood boring beetle. Yeah. Which Dendrotinous I I I, uh, I didn't mention this earlier, but um, Henry Ulke does have a a, a Buprested, which is the wood boring beetles, uh, named after him. Um, so, but uh, yeah, maybe maybe eventually Zach will have one uh, that I discovered. 
Nice. Yeah. Doubtful. <laughs> Doubtful. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe. <laughs> well, um, should should we wrap it up here? I think I think this was a good episode, and I think this is a great start to a fun podcast discussing scientific finds throughout history, organisms that mo- maybe some people haven't heard of. Maybe we'll, we'll enlighten people with animals from 65 million years plus to, you know, just outside their door that they may never have heard of. That's um, the yeah. goal. And, you know, I like... I, we, the reason we did episode number one kind of highlighting the club and its uh, some of its members is like we do owe a lot to these guys yeah. in the fact that we we hadn't really heard a lot a lot of these guys before this but this is just a way a fun way for us to express our love for the natural world in a way that is a little bit more modern and I think if these guys could have formed a podcast they definitely would have there's no doubt about it they would have been drinking their eggnog they would have been in between races of potato sack races or whatever and they would have been recording these podcasts um so yeah we we got to we definitely got to thank them and their contributions to science yeah moving forward to like our own inspirations in science so yeah i like to think of this this episode as uh, a tribute to show how grateful we are to the the path that these men paved for us. They kind of, yeah. uh, from what I've read, they definitely ran instead of walked so that we could run. But they, yeah, we're hitting the ground running because of these men. Oh yes, yeah. yeah. But a bit of homage, 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 hummus. Yeah. No, hummus. hummus. <laughs> I, oh. I need some carrots with my homage. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> To the to the good old guys that uh, yeah. started it all. I mean, if I had to pick a time period throughout history before knowing about this club, I don't think I'd choose the American Civil War time period. But if I hung out with these guys, I I'd, I'd go back. Yeah, I would have probably slapped them if they were racist on the face um, <laughs> and been like, no. Now go back out and Stop look it. at rocks again. Yeah, it also so, kind of sounds but, like you needed pre-existing health conditions to be a part of the mega theory, right? And not yeah. be fighting in the Civil War. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, I think we should end it with Robert Kennicott's quote uh, that we pulled out of the Smithsonian article on this club. Yep. In that Robert Kennicott speaks of the club uh, out of fondness. Uh, do you, do you want to say it, Sean? Since you were the one that brought us together for this. Uh, yes. Uh, one second. I'll just have to pull it up here. Um, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. Yo, sorry there. about that. Yeah, how, how about oh, you take it? Take the lead here. All right. All right. I'll I'll take it. Okay. It is five o'clock when the Megatherium takes its prey. That the most interesting characters of the animal are seen. Then it roars with delight and makes up for the hard work of the day by much fun and conduction. That's a quote from Robert Kennicott talking about the club probably in his last few years of life. I, th- I think that kind of encompasses what we're trying to do. You know, we're all scientists, but we all, we all do this out of fun, right? And why not, you know, drink a glass of wine or a, or a like heavily tequila margarita? Um, <laughs> 
and just talk about what makes the history of all this interesting and what makes our lives uh, kind of worth living like studying the natural world around us. So thanks to these guys for kind of getting the, uh, that started and uh, we'll kind of pick it up. Cool. Definitely. I, don't, I don't think I could have said that any better, Spencer. So thank you for that. Oh, well, thanks. I don't know if it was very coherent, but uh, I appreciate that anyway. So uh, thanks for listening to number one. How, how? How, how? How, how? Thanks for tuning in. See you next week. Oh, God, Jack, we're not doing next week.